Hey guys, Steve here, Potent Ponics. Today we're gonna to talk about gr 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 growing with fishes. Growing with fishes. Wendy Kornberg uh, uh, is going to be our next guest. She's the, I like to call her the queen of KNF. She is the, by far the most knowledgeable woman on, on KNF and natural farming that I'm aware of. Uh, so uh, certainly the, the most knowledgeable one I've ever had the pleasure of meeting for sure. So um, thanks a lot for joining us. And uh, she's going to be talking to us about um, some other KNF methods and kind of supplementing a lot of stuff that Chris was talking about yesterday. Um, she does a whole bunch of different uh, in-person stuff out there in California. Uh, I know she's at uh, a different type of workshop almost on a monthly basis, so be sure to, to check out her her Instagram and things like that over at Sunabis to find out more information from her. If you want to learn from her in person, I know she's uh, always teaching in, in person as well. So thanks a lot for joining us. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Awesome. It's, uh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to do a little preface and let people know that I don't actually grow aquaponics. That being said, a lot of the stuff that we do in Korean natural farming or what we, what's the rest of the world calls it natural farming, just NF, um, is absolutely applicable for aquaponics and for these types of systems. I know that Chris went over a lot of things yesterday because he has had experience with aquaponics. He grew lettuces and ginger and all kinds of things. So he's gotten to play with that a lot more than I have. Uh, that being said, I am pretty experienced in using this type of uh, methodology and farming systems for cannabis specifically. I do grow other crops as well. Uh, we grow on our homestead here. We have tomatoes, we have cucumbers, we have, my children have a little section of garden, which has been fun because they just get to go out and, you know, do whatever. We're, we try and grow giant pumpkins. We're not so good at that yet, but uh, it's a fun process for a six-year-old and a 10-year-old to go through. So um, yeah, so that being said, um, I'm just gonna go ahead and start jumping right in because as I was going over these things, I realized that there's a decent amount to cover and I feel like there's gonna be a lot of questions going on. And I really wanna make sure that I leave time for you guys to get those questions answered. Uh, I was going to be on my computer and my phone so I could kind of see chat and answer things as they came up but my computer is dead. And being that we just came off of a natural farming workshop, I think that I might have left the charging cord there. Oh, so no. uh, I'm, yeah, you know, I, okay. <clears throat> I well, tend to. We'll queue yeah. up the questions for you. Yeah. So if there are questions as they come, if Steve, if you want to jump in and if it seems pertinent to the moment, um, and I might, I might say, you know, I'm getting to that or something, but in general, I know that a lot of this stuff gets a little bit confusing for people. So starting out, what we're going to talk about really is the, the, so normally in soil, what we see is that building your soil and creating your soil health and getting fungal dominance as a part of your soil system is really, really important. That is kind of key for an easy hands-off approach to farming using this system, I should say. Well, using any system really, but it's it's definitely uh, pertinent for natural farming. That being said, I know that with aquaponics, that isn't something you guys work with. So we're just gonna kind of ignore that section for now and talk about the foliar feeds. So natural farming has all of these wonderful recipes on how to make basically anything that you want to put on your plant. If it needs nitrogen, if it needs potassium, you need micronutrients. Um, we don't really, that I know of, have ways to dial in. There are ways to dial in micronutrients, but that's kind of, you know, uh, that's an aside. And I don't know that we'll have time to get into that too much today. But um, in general, you know, if you need something, it is here and available. And the best part for me, at least, that I think is that you can make all of this yourself for very, very cheap. So it's really economical. It's easy to play with. You get really fast plant responses with these foliar feeds. And if you're in any type of cannabis industry and you're thinking about going into the legal side of the market, and even if you're not, really, you should be controlling what goes onto your plant. But especially if you're going into the legal market, and especially if you are in a state like California, which has extremely tight regulations, our testing is 
uh, Steve and I talked about this at one point, I was trying to do the math and I was just like, I think it's like 0.1, one millionth of a percent of something that was allowed. And it was a uh, Fipronil. We were having a discussion about flea medications. Yeah. That's <laughs> and uh, the the flea medication in NextGuard, I believe it is, is called. No, it's not NextGuard. Frontline. 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 Yep, that stuff right there. That's the stuff. Yeah. So that is causing. There is a. Is anybody else hearing a echo? Is that just mine? That's. That's me. Oh, wait, that's me. My oh, that's you. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that's okay, Steve. It's very distracting. Um, so yeah, so fipronil is an active ingredient in frontline flea medication, and there are absolutely cannabis farms in California that are failing testing for that. And we've had this huge discussion and people, you know, a lot of people want to say, well, this is overdrift from different spray. This is this, this is that. But the truth of the matter is I live in a really rural area and there is no possible way overdrift. Some of these are tucked, you know, their grows tucked in the red. It's going to be clean. It's going to be pure. And I have control over what I put on it, which means that when people are stressing out about testing, I'm just sitting back and being like, why are we all so worried? So um, so I did kind of mock up a little thing. Natural farming uses a lot of acronyms. We are kind of like the Navy SEALs of the farming world. And I'll see if I can, I did this huge whiteboard and then realized that it was actually really big and now I don't have my computer. So I can't tell if you guys can see it. And I can't tell if it's backwards. Is it upside down and backwards? Nope, no, good. it's not. I mean, that's good. Okay, great. Perfect. Lovely. Good, so as far as it goes with our foliar feeds, there's always three things that we use in every recipe. You're always going to have fermented plant juice, FPJ. You're always going to have OHN, Oriental Herbal Nutrient, and you're always going to have brown rice vinegar or BRV. If you don't have brown rice vinegar, so Brown rice vinegar specifically is actually really, really hard to get here in the United States. That being said, you can generally find rice vinegar, which is a great, you know, second. Um, and that can be bought by the gallon at like restaurant stores. It's all over the place. Make sure you don't get one that says seasoned. It has to be the unseasoned rice vinegar. And if you can't find that, you can make your own vinegar. You can use apple cider vinegar. Uh, there are other options, but you don't really want to use an industrial white vinegar. Those don't have the same um, nutrients and values that we have when we have our like whole live vinegars. So if I ever run out of brown rice vinegar, I also have um, little quarts of Bragg's apple cider vinegar, vinegar with the mother, which is what I use to seed my own vinegars when I'm starting them. It just kicks the process up a little faster. So, like I said, you're always going to have these three, no matter what you're doing. Those are the kind of the base of your recipes. Generally, your fermented plant juice is at a one to 500 ratio. Your oriental nutrient, herbal nutrient, your OHN is at a one to 1,000. And your vinegar is at one to 500. And the thing that people have a hard time with, and especially when we're talking about those of us in the cannabis industry, which everybody thinks more is better, more is better. Like we really should like, you know, pump it up. And I mean, I used to grow salt-based nutrients. So back in the day, yeah, I ran the Fox Farm schedule using the 50, 10, 10 and the, you know, 30, 20, whatevers. And you're putting it on excessively heavy to just push things super hard. And I found at that point in time that number one, I didn't really like using those products. They didn't, they, they just didn't feel quite right to me, um, which is kind of funny to say, but it just always felt like I'm like, eh, this isn't, I don't know. I don't really like it. Um, and I didn't really prefer the flower that came out of it. So as I had like, you know, my little home patch that I just, you know, did I'd put extra plants in and kind of forget about them. It was always better. Those flowers that I didn't get the yield off of it the way that I did when I was like, you know, force feeding them all the time. But there was something that was always a little bit different and a little bit more balanced in those flowers. So as we moved further and further away from, you know, being having to grow inside and you know hiding everything um and i should also let you guys know that i'm second generation cultivator in southern humboldt county 
So I grew up here in the eighties and nineties when camp was, we had a, 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 um, a law enforcement team called the campaign against marijuana planters. And it was supported by the DEA and our uh, sheriff's department. And they would fly in helicopters and they would have guys hanging on ropes out of the helicopter and they would come down and hover and just fly over, you know, everywhere, over homesteads, over forests, and they would always be looking for places to bust. So, you know, we learned really quickly how to hide things very well. You had gorilla grows that were up in ranch land or out in national forests, or you tied things down and like hid them through your tomato plants and your vegetables. And, um, and so as we are able to start moving away from that and away from this whole idea of having to be very, very efficient with our growing, because when you're hiking a bag of chicken manure on your back three miles up the you know mountainside to the nearest creek where you have a secret gorilla grow, you certainly weren't going to use things that were heavy. You weren't using bottled nutrients. It was like a dry amendment, if anything. And generally it was chicken manure. You dug a hole, you put it in, you figured out how to water it now and then, and, and that was it. So I actually, I think Breeder Steve was talking about this at one point about, you know, gorilla grows and how you just put things in the mountain and, and left it. And then you came back months later and hopefully you had a crop. Um, had I known about this system at the time, I would have been, it would have been a whole game changer. But, um, you know, that being said, we didn't know. So very, very small dilution and you don't need to increase it. With cannabis, we can increase some of these, but you have to be really careful. What we're seeing a lot of is people that are new to this farming methodology, but they're coming from cannabis industry, so they have experience with this plant. And you can really put a lot of nutrients in cannabis, especially if you're doing a salt-based nutrient, especially if you're in cocoa core. You know, um, I, I don't know about how that works with aquaponics. I don't know if you can push it as hard as you can if you're in a soil-based medium, but, um, but you don't need to. And what happens is people go overboard and they fertilize too often. They feed their plants too often and they feed them too much. And we see all kinds of nitrogen toxicities and different uh, deficiencies due to lockouts and just all kinds of wonky things happening. And that in turn increases your pest pressure. So pests go to plants that have high nitrogen. They, there's a signal that puts off, it weakens the cell structure, it lets them get in easier. And um, our full-term garden, for example, we haven't sprayed anything. We don't spray pesticides over there. We don't utilize, um, we don't really do any preventatives even. You can use lactobacillus, I think Chris mentioned that, as kind of a PM preventative. Although there's some, you know, trials going on, we're not sure how effective that's really going to be. Um, but we don't do, we haven't done any of that and there's no bugs. We don't have, I mean, cucumber beetles are a big problem on my farm. Um, but we really just don't see that pressure because we're not force feeding our plants. We're letting them do their natural genetic expression. You know, I'm not in this for the most quantity possible. I want a really high quality product. And I want to be able to make more money per pound for my high quality product rather than having to deal with thousands of pounds of mids that I'm having trouble selling and I don't feel good about. So, you know, again, small ratios are good. You don't need to force feed, especially if you're paying attention to your plants. So once you kind of have your basic solution down, which is the same thing that you're going to use for a seed soak also, your germination using this is phenomenal. I did a, a test, um, gosh, two or three years ago now, I believe, where I had a control group and I did a seed soak solution on both cannabis and I also did loofah sponges and um, I think I did a third a third one, but I can't remember what it was right now. And what I found was that the plants that I soaked in the SES solution or the seed soak solution, which again is just these first three. So it's your vinegar, your fermented plant juice and your oriental herbal nutrients. Um, those, that help followed that plant through its life. And I had side by side, I was like, this is crazy. They had about the same height, but the internode lengths were shorter on the ones that were soaked and the nutrient availability that it picked up its entire life 
was almost doubled that of the other ones, of the ones that were just soaked in plain water. So it was, that was my first kind of eye-opening experience of this stuff works. And it works at these crazy dilute levels for, you know, an astronomically long period of time. This year, I also did a test run, a trial on clones. Can you dip the root base in the SES? My thought process was, well, if it works for seeds, it should work as well to inoculate the clone roots. And what we found was that indeed it does. The growth difference was almost this, it was again, like you, you couldn't visually see that it was that different of a height. But once I popped the clones that had been planted in a forage pot, so I dipped it in the SES, planted it in the forage pot. When I was transplanting those, the ones that had been dipped, the root mass was almost double. So it was just, again, another indicator that, you know, I'll, I'll, I continue to run side by sides and do trials with control groups because I like to have that proof. I like to, you know, show people this works exactly how we're saying it works. And, and here you go visually, you can actually experience it. So um, am I frozen? No, you're good. No. Okay, good. Sorry. <laughs> I also live in a very rural area, so every now and then, like, our internet goes a little wonky, and I'm never sure if I'm, like, is it still good? So, all right, cool. No all right, cool. Um, so, that there being was one, said. There was one question from Chad is, uh, would KNF in a hot desert environment change anything of that from that ratio? It shouldn't. I mean, there's, there's always, so the one caveat that I do tell people is that, you do need to experience this in your grow, in your environment where you are at, because there are things that do need to be kind of zhuzhed, if you will. It's not a lot of things, but, um, you know, it's just like growing any cannabis, any, any a plant anywhere, but especially cannabis, is that your terroir will influence what's happening with your plant itself. And um, really getting it dialed in site specific. We can give you blanket ideas of how to start, but you will need to do little adjustments here and there. So, you know, in general, there is a vegetative growth recipe. There is a flower or bloom recipe or a, a reproductive recipe, I should say. And then there's a changeover recipe, which we kind of know in cannabis as transition period. So transition is usually a week before you turn off the lights and or flip lights to 12-12 and a week after you flip lights to 12-12. That's when we would recommend changeover solution. That being said, cannabis is definitely its own little beast and she does have different requirements than any other plant I've ever grown. So a lot of this is, you know, again, there are some just general schedules and everybody wants like a really nice, easy schedule. Like I just want to know how often to do it and what to do. And I just want it to be exact. And it's just not that simple. I really, I wish it was, and we can again, give you a baseline schedule to follow. But the reality is if you're farming, if you're growing cannabis, if you're even have a little, especially actually, if you have one little tent or two little tents or four lights or something small, learning how to read your plant's nutritive cycle, learning what your toxicities look like, learning what your deficiencies look like visually, you can solve all of those with these solutions. And within 24 hours, I mean, you'll see them turn so fast. But if you don't have that understanding, it's easy to go overboard because again, there's such dilute kind of homeopathic recipes, people think that it's not making a difference. I'm going to double it because one to 500 just doesn't sound like enough. I just, I really want to push the potassium. So I'm going to add, you know, one to 500 of WSK, which is a salt water soluble potassium that you can make. And I, I don't recommend doing that until you just kind of, until you're really confident that you know what nitrogen deficiency looks like and you know how to treat that and you know what nitrogen toxicity looks like. We see that actually a lot more than anything else when people are getting into natural farming with cannabis. They really wanna push the nitrogen. And I mean, it's amazing to watch those leaves just start to turn dark blue and start doing that nitrogen claw. And um, it's, it's, it's impressive that you can use something at such a dilute ratio and still see it you know, uptake so incredibly well. Uh, so, yeah, so you've got your basic recipe. Those three are in everything at those ratios. So one to 500 to one to 1,000, very, very small ratios. 
you're not using this more than once per week. And ideally, you don't even really need to do that. Again, with aquaponics, you might need to do it at least once a week. Maybe you can increase that, but do it with extreme caution and do it only because you're seeing a deficiency, not because you're just going with some schedule that you think sounds better. Um, and, you know, again, I, I just, I highly encourage you guys all, if you want to go down natural farming, to be very cautious and conscientious about these homeopathic levels because they do a lot there i think chris talked yesterday about that these solutions are micronized they're immediately bioavailable at levels that is much greater than the bioavailability of any other bottled nutrients so into the what to add when to add type of situation so oh look at that's great perfect so for nitrogen if you're noticing a nitrogen deficiency or you want to give your plants nitrogen in their vegetative cycle, you're going to add fish amino acid. Fish amino acid takes six months to a year to make. Uh, if you go to YouTube and you search, oh no, Chris doesn't have this one on there. Mm, interesting. Well, we could go into the how to make all of these, but that's kind of like a five-day course in and of itself. So we're not, I'm not going to go into that, but um, Fish amino acid specifically is pretty easy. Equal rate weight of fish refuse to brown sugar. So guts, head, tail, whatever. Uh, you can use whole fish as well. You can use freshwater fish. You can use seawater fish. It doesn't really matter too much. Seawater fish that is black or blue is recommended by traditional farming by Master Cho. So, um, you know, but, and then you have to let it sit for six months to a year. You can start using it at three months. It's really better if you can go for six. So this one takes a long time to make, but it's incredibly effective. That's generally used at one to 1,000 ratio. So every gallon that you make of this, you get 1,000 gallons of solution from. Huge. You can increase that. However, you should not until you notice a deficiency. I've, I have not had to increase it. I've had a few that went super deficient and I, I used it a little bit higher, like a one to 800, but that's because I know my plants extremely well. I know their levels. I grow the same cultivars. Um, so, you know, you, you kind of have to take that with a grain of salt. Uh, we have water soluble calcium. So that's a great one that you make with eggshells and vinegar, super easy. Again, generally used at a one to 1000 ratio. Water soluble calcium phosphate. Um, which is fantastic for your changeover. So if you're going into transition, you want to start doing a foliar of this. Really, that's about the only time it's used other than a bit in bloom as well, because we do need a bigger phosphate boost at that point. Water-soluble potassium. This one is not traditionally in a lot of the classes or the things that you know about. Um, because most plants don't really need extra potassium. There's usually a decent amount in your soil or in your soil amendments if you're amending your soil, which if you're a soil farmer, you should. If you're doing dual root zone with aquaponics, I would imagine you should be amending that soil layer as well. Um, but again, I, I don't really do aquaponics, so I don't know for certain. Maybe Steve can address that at some point. Um, but Again, especially if you're growing cannabis, the water-soluble potassium is really good to add towards the end of your bloom or into the bloom cycle. Or again, anytime you see that that potassium is deficient. Uh, uh, cannabis is a high feeder for your potassium. It uses you know, a decent amount of calcium and your phosphate as well. So those are good ones to know about. Seawater is basically your micronutrient. So if you're noticing any micronutrient deficiencies, seawater is fabulous to use. We have a lot of discussions about this because people think salt equals negative. It's bad. Um, people ask a lot about, you know, mercury levels and, um, you know, radiation and things like that with what's in the fish and what's in the seawater. And I feel like those are just things you have to balance on your own and make your own ethical decisions. For me, you know, I could go out and I could buy a source of potassium or a source of micronutrients or a source of nitrogen that's on the shelf. However, how do I know for certain that those were made with any more integrity, ethics, or environmental safety than what I can make myself? 
if I can go to my local fish cutter and I can get all of the stuff that would be tossed out or thrown out and I can turn that into a product I can use at one to 1000 ratio, that's worth it for me. It's worth the risk. Um, I do know that you know, I, I'm a mother, so when I started breastfeeding, the amount of mercury that's in breast milk is actually like kind of astronomical. The amount of lead that it gets exuded when we're breastfeeding is is crazy. All of those heavy metals actually come out um, in the breast milk. So again, you know, these are these are total random tangent. Sorry about that, but but point being that. You know, if you're going to really start to nitpick these processes, then I would encourage you to go and find the bottled nutrient that you prefer and look into how that was made. Look into what's actually in that. Uh, I would be hard pressed to say that I would believe that it is better than being able to make this yourself. Um, Seawater, again, the, the salt idea. People have a really hard time with being like, wait, you're putting ocean water on the plants, but it's so salty. You're diluting that down to a one to 30. There are a few things that use it a little higher ratio, but in general, it's one to 30. So if you put one part of seawater into 30 parts of water and taste it, you're not tasting the salt anymore. It's not salty, but it is adding all those micronutrients. I believe seawater has over 42 different micronutrients. It might be more than that. I don't really remember offhand, but um, it's it's a wonderful balanced kind of micronutrient for all of your plants. And you can use that at any point in the cycle. So if you're seeing that there is a, uh, we've been seeing a lot of iron deficiencies this year, which I find very interesting and kind of bizarre. Um, zinc deficiencies, there's all kinds of stuff going on in cannabis. And it may just be that we are more comfortable asking for help now, whereas, you know, back in the day, it was so kind of clandestine and secretive that people had a hard time saying like, I have a weed plant and it has these problems, please help. Um, so I don't know if that's what's going on or if there's environmental stuff happening where we're seeing micronutrient deficiencies or if people just aren't understanding how to amend soil and how to utilize things appropriately. So saying like everybody, you know, people say I've, I'm in a, you know, 20 second cycle of this soil and somebody says that's amazing I'm just not going to re I'm not going to throw my soil out I'm just going to reuse it but they don't understand you still have to actually amend that soil um, so I'm assuming that with dual zone aquaponics it would be similar your soil is going to get depleted I don't think you're going to want to overdo it you probably don't want to amend in the way that we would in an open field but you are going to want to add nutrients back to your soil Foliars are great, they're awesome, but that's chasing nutrient. That's waiting for a deficiency and then adjusting it when you find it. We really, on my farm at least, and in, in all of my life of growing things, I would really prefer to have that available in the soil at the levels the plant needs. And then, you know, if I notice something that's a little off, I can go to a foliar, but not having that be part of my regimen. For aquaponics, I think that you guys would want to actually have the foliars be more of your regimen and have your soil be a little bit less so that you're not leaching all of your nutrients into your where your fish are living. Um, again, this is just my process of thinking about it. I, I love the idea of the dual root zone aquaponics. And if I had more time, I might like set something up. But, um, you know, we have a fairly large farm. So I and children and pets and, you know, and yes, I love to teach and do workshops. So <laughs> so I don't have time for that. But someday, Someday I'll, I'll get into this and Steve will come and help me set something up and we'll have fun tinkering and seeing how this works with cannabis in aquaponics and going into the, the natural farming pretty in, in depth. Um, where did I put my little notes? There we go. All right. So, yeah, we went over the acronyms. Um, I did want to touch real quick on uh, pesticide use. So in natural farming, uh, in Korean natural farming, there is no pesticides. They, he doesn't recommend it. Um, the great thing too is like all of these solutions are good for human health. So our oriental herbal nutrient, my family takes that every day uh, from a tablespoon up to an ounce a day. It is a tincture. Um, and I'm sorry, I didn't go over what some of these things were. So oriental herbal nutrient is a tincture that is made out of a ferment of five different spices. Angelica, garlic, ginger, um, cinnamon, and licorice root. 
And actually, I think Chris might have talked about this yesterday, so you can bounce into that a little bit. But that tincture is amazing. I have not had a cold or a flu since I started taking it daily over three years ago now. Um, most of my family takes it daily, and we just have very robust immune systems. My six-year-old still gets sick because she doesn't like it. So, uh, but even my 10 year old, like we, we just, we haven't gotten sick in a really, really long time, even before quarantine and shelter in place and the whole COVID debacle that's been happening. Um, before that, we still, when we're taking this, we just, you know, we aren't really getting sick. So um, it's, it's great. All of these are really, really great for human health. Lab, I know Chris talked a lot about that yesterday. Great for your gut biome, it's amazing. The cheese that comes off of that is absolutely delicious. It's really good for your livestock. If you've got cattle or chickens or hogs, even dogs and cats, like my dogs and cats, well, we kind of, we, I, sometimes I share the cheese with them, sometimes I don't. Um, but even the, the lab serum, you can add that into the water for your animals and it's fabulous. So this isn't just a farming methodology and ideology. This is also something that we utilize for our own human biome and our own human health. So it's really fantastic. That being said, we do find that cannabis is one of the most loved plants by every single pest in the world. <laughs> like I'm, I've yet to find a bug that eats something that doesn't go after weed primarily. So when we're doing that, um, when, we're, when we're getting into these problems where, you know, you see a lot of cannabis aphid issues, we see russet mites, we've got broad mites, we've got spider mites, we've got root aphids, we've got, I mean, you know, you name it, it's going after it. Um, so as you're moving into more natural farming, there is a transition period where you will see kind of a, a fall off on yield and quality for a minute. And a lot of that's just because it's a new system and there's a learning curve. When we have bug problems though, it's not something, cannabis is such a high cash value crop. We can't just throw our hands up and say, oh, never mind. I'll just let the bugs take that one, right? We're like, okay, fix it, fix it now. What do I do? Help. And in that case, there's a, another methodology related to KNF called JADAM, J-A-D-A-M. And JADAM was created by Master Cho's son. So KNF was created by Master, not created, but put together really and, and brought to the world by Master Cho. His son kind of said, this is maybe a lot of work and I feel like I want to utilize natural farming, but do it differently. And what can I do? So he's done a ton of work on this other way of cultivating. So there's other, you know, that doesn't use the acronyms that I just went through. Uh, he has his own systems of making fertilizers and things like this. And the thing that I do like about Jadam is it does include pesticides. And we've been trialing out a lot of things on cannabis um, and some work better than others. Some don't seem to work at all. And some of them we're finding is not prescribed by the Jadon book and what he thinks that you should utilize it as, but actually it needs higher ratios. So we have things like Jadon wetting agent, which is basically a safer soap that you can make yourself. It's made of, it's a, um, let's see, it's a fatty acid of potassium salts. So you're making this soap out of potassium hydroxide, canola oil, and water. And you're just, it's a, it's a small process. It's pretty easy for the most part. And it's great. It's a suffocant and a desiccant for your pests. And we found that it works pretty well with the cannabis aphids. Um, it works pretty well with the spider mites. But you do have to kind of increase the ratio and you have to increase the time frame. So when you're going with a natural pesticide, this isn't going to be like avid or fluoramite or some systemic pesticide where you're poisoning the entire plant and through that you're poisoning the bugs themselves. It doesn't have residual contact. So it's not like you spray it on the leaves and then anytime the bug walks across it, they die. This is really, these are just contact killers. You have to coat the pest itself and it will die. The mortality rates seem to vary, but you know, initial kill rate is 60 to 80% with just Jadam wetting agent. 
If you want to increase the efficacy and decrease the amount that you're using and the, the amount of times you have to spray it, your, your, um, your, um, oh gosh, what's the word? Anyway, the amount of times you have to spray it, <laughs> how often you're doing it. Uh, then you can add JHS, which is Jadam Herbal Solution. And the JHS, it seems to, we're, we're trialing Bay out. We have one natural farmer who is adamant that the Bay kills the aphids really, really well. My trials didn't really confirm that. It seemed to do it at the beginning, but it didn't, it didn't kill them off entirely. They left the plant, but then they went to the other plants. So I'm not sure how I feel about California Bay Laurel as a JHS just yet. We still have a lot of work to do to decide whether or not it is effective and worth the time. That being said, in the Jadam book, there, there's actually a whole book on 100 herbs that you can use. For the most part with cannabis, we've really settled on Jerusalem artichoke as being highly effective. Uh, ginkgo has been pretty effective, although I haven't trialed that out as much as I would like because I don't have ginkgo trees where I live. Um, and I feel like I'm forgetting one of them. It's really those two for the most part, the bay laurel, right? Which is kind of, it's not in the book. It hasn't been tested. We're still working on it. Uh, if anybody is running trials on that and they're, you know, doing good pest counts and they're understanding how to utilize it properly, or if you want to help um, and you want to run a trial, like, let me know. And I would love to gather more data from across the field on what works and what doesn't. So JHS and JWA are great. I, these, I don't know about for root aphids. I'm going to say I would probably not mess with root aphids and these solutions unless I really had time and the plants to sacrifice them. Uh, and again, I wouldn't, I would try and keep this out of your water. So with aquaponics, you know, the JWA is just a soap. You're probably okay with a small amount of that getting in there, but I would really be cautious about making sure you're covering your mediums and keeping it on your plant surface and not getting it into that system. I have the feeling that some of these things could be really bad for it. Uh, Jerusalem artichoke might be a terrible thing to get into your system. Again, I don't know for, certain. know for certain. It's mainly the JWA. You want to make sure you don't get too much of it in your system and then um, avoid yucca uh, is the only one that I'm aware of that is like instantly fish lethal. In fact, the Native Americans in California and Oregon used to actually collect the yucca juice uh, and concentrate it in, um, into uh, clay vessels and then use that concentrate to actually pour into rivers and have the tribe wait about half a mile or a mile downriver and they collect all the fish during the fish run and then they dry it and that was the food for the winter. So um, it actually works that good at a very small dose. That's pretty interesting. So yeah, I'm, I may actually play a little bit with yucca as a Jadam herbal solution and a JHS and see kind of, again, but this is not things that I would recommend that you guys do yet. Like just stick with the tried and true stuff that's been trialed out. It's been tested. Use things with caution and really kind of, you know, pay attention to um, how your plants are responding and don't overdo it. It's slow and slow, slow, slow. Uh, this is like eating cannabis edibles. If you don't know how five milligrams is going to hit you, take two. <laughs> See how that looks. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. And Steve just said it's the saponin that kills the fish. So, um, that makes perfect sense actually. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yucca. I believe that wet Betty uses yucca, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. Some of the wedding agent products out there, and you also see it too sold as like um, uh, sometimes sold as like a soil uh, conditioner or a soil prep or, or something like that uh, or cocoa prep and to try and help that cocoa absorb a little more water. Um, right. That's right. What, that can get you into trouble, especially when people are going into and they're 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 used to growing cocoa and they're like, cool, well, we'll just grow cocoa with the aquaponic water. And, you know, they buy cocoa that has the, the yucca infused in it. And instantly, as soon as they flood the tables and bring it back to the fish tank, the fish all die. Um, I've seen that happen more times than I can count. So, I unfortunately. Bet. Yeah, I, I played with, uh, I did hydroponics at one point in time, just like the ebb and flow tables and the little clay balls. And I, I realized very, very quickly that uh, it seems like a really intense 
system, there's a lot of things like people always talk, you know, we hear a lot in the cannabis industry, but like, check your pH of your water. And I'm like, I grow in the soil. Like I highly recommend beds. And even for aquaponics for these dual root zones, if you can do pots on top, but give it a bed, those roots need to be able to spread. They need to be able to talk to each other. Um, I could go down a really esoteric kind of hippy dippy road with this, which is all about, you know, how plants communicate and how they do communicate. And, uh, but, but basically just, you know, the gist of it being that you want to have them be able to, you know, move their roots where they want to move them. Especially where you're from with the albino redwood trees that literally use them as a storage locker for heavy metals and, and keep them alive for that purpose. So, I mean, it's a, on the extreme end of it. And that's right in your backyard. Yeah. Yep. It is. We've got, we've got some amazing albino redwood trees. Um, you know, it's we're I, I'm really blessed. I live in a really amazing, amazing place and it's an amazing place to grow cannabis. So, uh, I really, I feel very deeply for all y'all that are having to like squeak out a little area of your closet and your rental and your apartment. Cause that's, that's rough, but you know, it's, it is what it is right now. And the more vocal we get about needing this to be a medicine. See, and I'm not going to go down the political road either. I'm not going to go down that, but, but <laughs> make sure you are being engaged with these processes in your state or country, because it is really important that you have a say and a stake in the game that you want to play in. Otherwise you will have a lot of problems and you'll find yourself having to talk a lot more than you'd like to if you didn't talk at the beginning. So get out there and, you know, uh, talk about it. Um, so uh, tools of the trade, I do want to cover that because I do see some things that kind of drive me a little bit nutty. And that's all y'all with the paint sprayers. Um, if paint sprayers were so great, they would be used all the time by horticulture and we would not have things like backpack sprayers that are specifically made for gardening. We would just, everybody would just buy paint sprayers. So there's lots of different sprayers out there. Um, they have, you know, you can go from as small as a little handheld one, which if you're doing natural farming is great. If you're on a really small scale, you can tailor in and you can say, this one has nitrogen. This one has potassium. This one has my calfos and I can then interchange and I can walk down in my little four or six lights or however, you know, my up to a hundred small plants, if you're inside or something along those lines, and you can treat each plant individually. Um, the more you grow, the more you realize that cultivars are very, very specific in their nutrient needs. And even within that cultivar, if you have, even if you buy clones, oftentimes they're actually not from the same mother. You'll have a few that are phenotypically about the same and they'll take cuts. And as you're growing them out, you're like, this one's a little different than those ones. Like what's going on here? Oftentimes you're getting a cut from a different mom and its nutrient needs are just a little bit different. So if you have all your little handheld sprayers and you're able to, you can treat each plant specifically for what you're seeing in it. So it's, it's great. And within 24 hours, you see them picking up and, and shifting and getting more in balance with what their nutrient cycling is. So it's really cool to watch that. If you're at a larger scale, you know, they make four gallon backpack sprayers. They're pretty easy. Uh, I don't particularly like them. I'm five foot two. I weigh, you know, not a whole lot of poundage. I'm pretty strong because I farm, but yet those things, when they're full of liquid, you know, you've got eight gallons, eight pounds per gallon. So times four, that's 32 pounds plus the battery, plus the backpack. It's a lot of weight for me to hold on my shoulders for as long as it takes. That being said, it's efficient. They work very well. We own many of them. Uh, I tend to put them on the ground and kind of huff them along one by one but um, it's a great solution if you're a mid-scale farmer or you're bigger than, you know, a little handheld one gallon or one liter pump spray will do, you can move up to those. If you're going past that, what we have on our farm, so our farm here on the banks of the Eel River in Southern Humboldt County is eight, currently 18,000 square feet of cultivation. We have 10,000 square feet of light deprivation and 8,000 square feet of full term. And what I scaled up to a couple of years ago is a 15 gallon off-road tank sprayer called a Grow King sprayer. And this is made by a company um, that 
took the large scale Venturi sprayers, which you see on really big agriculture. They're like, it's a truck with a huge thing on the back of it, or they make ones that go on the back of the quad, which are really big. They took all of that technology and just sized it down to be something appropriate for a small farm. And I love that. It has a 50 foot long hose, so I can park it and get basically my entire 100 foot row. And it's amazing. It's got all these different tips. It was trialed by Elaine Ingham for biologicals. And that's the other thing that I wanna talk about um, in just a sec is that, uh, so this was trialed for biologicals and it doesn't kill your biology. So as I'm spraying something like a liquid IMO or a compost tea, I'm not beating up all of my microbes and pulverizing them. So when you look at paint sprayers, they have very, very large droplet sizes and it's not appropriate to get an even coverage. When we're spraying these solutions, we want it to be, you know, a good surface coverage, um, light misting. If you want to do it like liquid IMO, you can do a little bit more frequently. Um, and I believe Chris talked about that, that that's something that could be appropriate for aquaponics, but not IMO for your soil. soil. Right. So, yeah. So using a liquid IMO for your all of your foliage is a really, really great preventative uh, for everything. It's also a great curative for things. I had some septoria, I believe it was septoria on some tomatoes a couple of years back and did a, a, a version of IMO. It wasn't of liquid IMO. It wasn't perfect because I only had IMO2 at the time and it really should have been made with at least IMO4. As I go down more and more of these processes, I'm learning that, you know, further and further that you can get with these IMO processes to make, it makes a better liquid IMO. So, but the IMO2 worked and the, the septoria, I mean, I pulled off all the bottom leaves that were anywhere near the ground and um, had a bumper crop of tomatoes that year. So uh, it's very similar. I suspect it would be very similar for cannabis. I think that septoria has been a real big issue for a lot of growers this year. And I, I firmly believe that a liquid IMO foliar will probably solve that for you guys. So if you want to get into that, Chris does have a video on how to make IMO. There's also a really wonderful video that he put out called All About IMO. It's about 45 minutes, but it's going to give you the ideology behind what indigenous microorganisms are. And that's really, really important. That's kind of one of the key things that a lot of people miss. So go watch that video, figure out where to collect from get it into your IMO collections. And then um, if you're having septoria or if you are even thinking that you will, because if you're growing weed, you probably will. <laughs> it's like the longer you grow, the more you'll figure out that, you know, if it hits cannabis, you're going to get it. So just get prepared for it ahead of time. Um, so yeah, so, you know, getting into that is really important and is really good and staying away from your paint sprayers. Just get an appropriate horticultural sprayer. We had a really uh, a lot of septoria last year in Oklahoma because we had a ton of flooding and we had a really good response doing um, uh, a bactillus treatment, then a lactobacillus treatment, and then just coming in and hitting it real hard with IMO and, and just getting those, you know, basically trying to, to kill it and then replacing it back with the microbes that should be there. And it worked it anywhere we could catch it early on. It worked without, you know, like a dream. It just, it just depended on if, if you catch it too late, it, it's really hard to undo. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and noticing that stuff early, we had fusarium that took down some plants and people were like, you have to sterilize that soil. You can't grow anything there again. We grew every year in that hole and it was great. Um, but, you know, it did take some killing off a lot of the biology and then bringing back in the good biology was really important. Um, and I realized I said I wanted to leave time, but I realized I don't have a clock in front of me. So I think that because optic foliar is here. Hi. Uh, I'm probably getting close to no, running you're, out. Uh, no, no, you, you still got eight minutes. He's oh, just, we're good? We're just okay, queuing sweet, up. Sweet. Yeah, yeah, no, people are just cool. making sure their stuff works. That's all. You're good. All right. Oh, gosh, we're so on top of it. Good job, everybody. That's awesome. Um, so one thing that was asked quite a bit yesterday uh, in chat when Chris was talking was about cannabis FPJ. So fermented plant. I don't have a mustache. This isn't fair. <laughs> um... <laughs> so uh, cannabis FPJ, fermented plant juice using cannabis. Um, 
I am a very, I have very strong opinions on this one and it's not based off of, you know, just like, I think this would be rad. I think this sucks. This is actually based on side-by-side -side trials that I ran uh, last year or the year before, maybe I can't even remember, honestly. And it's not, it's not great, you guys. Uh, I, I, it sounds like so much fun. And if you're growing weed, you'll probably want, and you go down natural farming, you're going to want to make a cannabis FPJ. Number one, it's really low yielding. Number two, if you're making a fermented plant juice correctly, you're only using the growing tips. So generally, if we are having beautiful, growing, vibrant tips of cannabis, we want to make a clone out of that. We don't want to turn that into plant food. Uh, the male plants for cannabis FPJ, I know that Chris covered that. I have to reiterate, bad idea. It's, it's a hormonal confusion. I think it's a bad idea. Um, I haven't done it myself because I'm not willing to try that this year. Maybe next year I'll do it and see if I can cause hermaphrodism. I mean, there is an idea that, you know, maybe we could force some feminized seeds using it, but I don't know for certain. Um, I, I'm just, I'm, yeah, it's just, I, yeah, I'm just going to say it's probably a bad idea. Um, and then using, people also want to use their fan leaves. Families are lower in hormones. They're lower in their growth regulators. They're just lower in everything. They're old leaves. It's it's like if I want to um, if I want to eat some prime venison, I'm not going to kill the oldest deer in the pack. I want to go for the younger ones. It's so kind of I live in the country. I'm a little bit country here. So <laughs> um, you know, again, younger plants, younger growing tips. This is where all the nutrition and all the growth hormones and all the good stuff that we're creating that we're, we're capturing in an FPJ, that's what we want. So if you have old fan leaves, juice them, make pesto. You can actually eat them. They're great. They're fine. Um, you know, again, if you've got male plants, I juice my male plants. I, every year I juice every single male plant I have and I put it in ice cube trays and I use it every single day as an ice. Well, I've actually ran out this year because I didn't grow enough males. Um, but <laughs> in general, uh, every day I have just an ice cube of fresh cannabis juice that's been frozen. And it's really, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with the juice of cannabis and how that is helping people with their endocannabinoid systems and their, um, just their human health overall. And I think that the University of San Francisco, maybe, um, no, Stanford, it's, I believe it's Stanford actually has some doctors down there that are very interested in running trials with sick people with fresh juice. So it's a great way to utilize those leaves. And we only have a couple minutes left. Are there, were there any other burning questions in chat or anything? Oh, forgot I was still on mute. Yes. Um, so uh, someone asked what your website is. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Um, so website is sunabis.com, S-U-N-N-A-B-I-S.com. We're also Sunabis on Instagram, which is where I do a lot of the sharing of my trials and just kind of what's going on on the farm and, um, you know, flowers, whatever, all that good stuff. Uh, and then I do have a Facebook page too, but it's just a, a regurgitation of the Instagram page. So... Instagram oh, here and I'll do this like I actually look I was so prepared haha Cenobis also www.cenobis.com you can get a hold of me uh Wendy at cenobis.com or sorry yeah yeah Wendy at cenobis.com through email uh however I'm not the best at emails it's not my preferred form of communication so just take that with a caveat if it's important just be like hey this is super important or get a hold of me on Instagram, private message me, and say I sent you an email. I'd like some help. All right. Um, do you have any advice for people making soil mixes? Well, I have lots of advice for people making soil mixes. Um, I'm just yeah, reading chat. Soil. Sometimes they're yes, <laughs> sometimes they're vague. Yeah, uh, so, so making your own soil mix for aquaponics, I, I don't know that I can advise on that because I don't, again, it's it's not 
I know that it's different, so I'm I'm reluctant we, to really say much. We we do pretty much uh, similar the for our living soil layer as as you guys, just with a little bit more aeration. So maybe with like 15% additional aeration. So whatever component that you're using to add aeration, that's really the biggest difference. Just so we can get more airflow through that when it when it's flooding and draining. That's all. And then that makes I, sense. I I swap out anything that's primarily nitrogen, like feather meal, for instance. Yeah. Popular. And it's just, I mean, it's basically just nitrogen. So I swap out anything that is, I would say, primarily nitrogen. So in your NPK, if the N is bigger than the other numbers, I usually try to swap that out, remove the nitrogen, and then add something else with P and K to make the difference. So you can really adapt any, like, of your common soil mixes that you want to give a try. Uh, just swap out any of the nitrogen stuff. So be be cautious about the nitrogen. I, that would make sense again because the nitrates in fish. Um, so as far as in general soil mixes, there's uh, one of the foundations of natural farming of doing soil mixes is adding a percentage of red soil. So depending on where you are in the world, that's something that you could look into. I when I fly out and go places, I drive um, down a little highway that goes from Highway 101 over to Sacramento over to I-5 and then down to Sacramento where I fly out of usually. And they have this amazing red soil there. It's it's like so vibrant. It's got all of that iron and all of those nutrients and minerals and things. And I kid you not, I drive with three five gallon buckets and a shovel in my car so that every time I can go over and bring back 20 gallons of this red clay, not clay, but this heavy red soil. And it's almost a, a terracotta color where I live. It's actually very much like the wall behind me here, that color of red. And so natural farming, I believe that's generally um, used at a, about a 20% ratio of your soil mix. So we do a lot of indigenous microorganism soils in the, the gardening that I do. Uh, again, you're not going to want to do that though, because you don't want that IMO4 in your system. So if you're even just maybe leaving that out and swapping that with some other type of compost, um, that would probably be a good way to start. But I don't do a lot of the super soils. I just, you know, we, we grow in the same dirt we've grown in forever and we just amend every year with you know, the IMO and then um, ideally IMO5 when you're taking it all the way into your nitro your heavy nitrogen source. But again, that's that's something that's going to be more specific for soil growing and not necessarily as much on the aquaponic side. All right. Well, uh, we uh, it's really exciting to learn a whole bunch more about KNF from uh, uh, from you, Wendy. Um, how do people find you again on uh, on the different various social medias and, and all the different things? And uh, how can they find out uh, the latest if they want to try and, and, and learn from you in person? So yeah, again, Sunabis, S-U-N-N-A-B-I-S on Instagram, Sungrown Cannabis. And I usually do a lot of announcements and things on there. Um, being that we're in COVID time, I know that live in-person stuff has kind of like backed off quite a bit, but we still are doing some. Um, and we've got some more exciting stuff coming up later this year. And uh, then on email, you can reach me at wendy at sunabis.com. And those are really the two best ways. We also do have a website, www.sunabis.com. So it's like sun-grown cannabis, sunabis. And that's pretty much easy. Um, little quick announcement is that uh, if you guys are interested in going really deep into uh, cannabis education, we have a program that's coming out through Greenflower Media. So if you Google Gangier, G-A-N-J-I-E-R, Gangier, it's uh, the, basically it's a sommelier program for cannabis. And uh, as far as we know, it's, it's taken two years, 8,000 hours. Uh, we have, this is just the first level and it's pretty amazing. That'll be coming out. So if you're interested, check that out, click on the little interest button and you can learn from really just incredible, incredible teachers. That's really awesome. And uh, I'm sure it's been a ton of work. I saw some of your posts uh, about that uh, online. They're pretty awesome. So, Yeah, it's been two years in the making and we were not allowed to say anything for all that time. So everybody's just like, oh, this is killing us. We can't even, we can't mention 
anything about it. And people be like, where are you going? I'm like, I'm going to LA, but I can't tell you anything else. <laughs> so we're finally launching now and we're finally like, yay, we get to kind of tell a little bit. So it's exciting. That's cool. Sweet. Well, I'm super excited for you on that. And uh, thanks again for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. And uh, it's been a great conference. It's been really fun. So I've loved watching. And you're going to be doing a radio spot here later today too. Do you want to plug that real quick? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have um, our Gonsha Tree show is a monthly show the first Sunday of every month from 1.30 until 3 o'clock. If you're local in Humboldt County, you can reach us at 91.1 FM. And for everywhere in the world, it is kmud.org. And so kmud.org, you can listen to live. You can also find it on the archives. And we're interviewing Shango today. So Shango Los from Shaping Fire is going to be on with us. And we'll be talking about autoflowers and growing uh, up where he is, which is the Vashon Island, which is lots of incremental weather, very short growing season. So I'm kind of a, a bit of a snob when it comes to autoflowers. I've yet to have any that I'm like, this is amazing, but um, it's come a long way since Ruderalis was kind of the autoflower that people grew. And it was really a ditch weed that was like, well, it was horrible. Um, so I'm actually really excited to hear about his experiences this year in growing those autoflowers and what, what's going on with them now. So uh, 1.30 to 3 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, kmud.org. It is a call-in show. So if you guys have questions, you can feel free to chat us up. Awesome. Well, I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks again. Awesome. Have a great, awesome. day, have you guys. A great day, you guys. Cheers. Thanks.